0: 50% of U.S. workers consider themselves disengaged at work, but 13%, 1 in 8 workers, is so disaffected by how they're treated on the job, they actively work against the interests of their companies.
1: Welcome to The Great Reset, a podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at how we can build a cleaner, fairer, smarter world after COVID 19. It's October the 21st and day two at the Jobs Reset Summit, where experts from around the globe will be discussing work, wages, and job creation.
0: During the period between the Second World War and the early 1970s, productivity gains were shared with workers. Productivity and worker wages went up almost in lockstep. Productivity has continued to follow its prior trajectory. Wages have been basically flat.
1: On this episode, Michael O'Leary and Warren Valdmanis, authors of Accountable, a blueprint for making capitalism work for all of us, tells us why it's urgent that companies treat their employees and their wage bills as investments rather than costs.
2: You look at the market value of every company in the S&P 500, 90% of that market value today is in intangible assets. Those
1: intangible assets, that's people. And we'll hear some of the highlights from day one of the Jobs Reset Summit, where the theme was economic growth, revival and transformation.
3: We don't see any recovery of the lost GDP associated with COVID. The implications of that for workers are all very dire.
1: Subscribe to The Great Reset on Apple SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to like, rate and review us. I'm Robin Pomeroy, Digital Editor at the World Economic Forum, and with daily coverage of the Jobs Reset Summit, this is The Great Reset. Now over to my colleague Linda Lacina for her roundup of some of the highlights of Day One, where the theme was economic growth, revival and transformation. Linda's first pick of Day One's action was Catherine Mann, global chief economist at Citi, who said a global recovery is possible, but returning to a pre-COVID global economy is not.
3: We don't see any recovery of the lost GDP associated with COVID. We get back to a trajectory growth, but we do not return to the trajectory of global GDP that we had in place in January pre-COVID. The implications of that for workers and for different uh, age group demographics uh, and for convergence of growth rates in emerging markets are all very dire. In fact, the crisis has brought staggering job losses. Egypt's international cooperation minister, Rania Al-Mashat, gave a sense of the impact to workers.
2: The true challenge from the pandemic is that uh, more than 195 million jobs were lost globally. uh, And from the estimates that the World Economic Forum puts out, 54% of those employed uh, need to be reskilled. This
3: new world and a new economy might need new measures for success and could spell the end of GDP as a marker of economic health according to Robert E. Moritz, chairman of PricewaterhouseCoopers. He had this to say about creating new tools to measure economic progress.
2: We assume GDP was a great measure mm-hmm. to demonstrate the progress society had. And that was done country by country. We have asymmetry right now that proves that's not the case. And it's not a relevant measure for the inclusive progress society is making.
3: Saadia Zahadid, Managing Director of the World Economic Forum, agreed with Robert. Here's what she had to say about new metrics that prioritize solutions for people and planet. If we want to change
0: where the focus of our recovery will go, if we don't just want to go back to GDP targets, then we need a new dashboard for the new economy. And that needs to encompass people, planet, prosperity, and institutions. So we're going to be working with a number of international organizations as well as governments to take that forward. But while these
3: challenges brought by COVID are immense, we don't want to return to business as usual. Hal Gurria, the secretary general of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development explained more.
4: We were in pretty bad shape before COVID uh, because we had the trade tensions. The trade tensions led to a drop in confidence. The drop in confidence led to a drop in investment and the drop in investment led to a drop in growth. So we weren't doing brilliantly uh, and then uh, COVID struck. Uh, And what COVID did was to make uh, very evident all the problems that we had in our structure in the way in which we are producing and the way in which which we are training, the way we are leaving uh, many people uh, uh, behind. Uh, So now uh, the question is, uh, let's uh, uh, analyze uh, what is it that we were doing wrong before the COVID and what therefore we can fix uh, going forward.
3: That was the Secretary General of the OECD speaking to the day's theme of transformation and how that can realize a great reset for jobs and the economy. These voices were just a sampling of the discussions held on day one of the Jobs Reset Summit to see and hear much more online Go to wef.ch jrs20. The World Economic Forum has a brand new podcast, Meet the Leader, where the world's top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. On this week's Meet the Leader, we talked to IBM's Dario Gill about his idea for a global super squad of scientists who could prevent future calamities with the best technology at their fingertips.
1: Could we mobilize a group of volunteer scientists that would engage ahead of the pandemic or even a meteorite? He'll
3: talk about why we need this super squad, known as the Science Readiness Preserves, and the supercomputer project that inspired it. He'll also explain what makes great collaborations tick and a book he thinks everyone should read.
4: It's not about one single institution that is gonna solve our problems, but a different way to collaborate with one another.
3: All this and more on this week's Meet the Leader.
1: So to today's interview. In their book, Accountable, Michael O'Leary and Warren Valdmanis argue that capitalism can only survive if companies put environmental and social goals at the heart of what they do. A big part of that is about employing workers fairly. Here's O'Leary on whether the book advocates a return to an imagined good old days when workers were treated better.
2: There's a lot of people in this field who would point to the post war era as a time when stakeholder governance reigned more supreme. This was a time when managers, business managers, saw it as their mandate to balance the competing interests coming from workers and governments, from consumers and from shareholders. But shareholders were doing well in this period. And so you you look at some some stats around, say, um, the ratio of CEO to median worker pay, that today is something like 300 to 1. In the United States, you go back to the 1960s, and it's something like 20 to 1. So the CEO was making much more than the median worker, but only 20 times more, not 300 times more. Uh, And the same thing you saw with, say, how long shareholders held stocks on average. So today, there's so much trading that happens in the capital markets that the average holding period for a stock is something like 6 months, 8 months in that range. You go back to the 1960s, it was like 8 years. And so a lot of people look back to this era and post-war unions were strong in the United States, wages were coming up. as kind of this golden this golden era of capitalism that the kind of shareholder primacy, maximize short-term profits at all costs, um, that the, you know the kind of last 50 years, we've lost. Now, it is worth mentioning though, and this came from uh, you know a lot of our deeper historical research for the book, it's worth mentioning that was a unique period in world history for many reasons, not the least of which being that coming out of the war, the United States was one of the few developed countries left standing. And so if you look at something like uh, steel production or automobile manufacturing, the US, despite having whatever it was, 5% of the global population, was manufacturing 80% of the global Cars. 80% of the steel in the world it was, you know, the average worker was 10 times more productive than the average Japanese worker or German worker at the time. And so we can no more turn back the clock to the 1960s than we can undo globalization or we can undo the development of a lot of other nations. And so for us, it's not so much about nostalgia as it is trying to use some of what was good about that period or some of what was good about kind of even earlier periods when local ownership. Reign supreme, and try to figure out how can we tweak companies, the investment markets today to get us closer back to what the idea would have looked like. Robin,
1: here's the critical thing. Warren Valdmanis.
0: During the period between the Second World War and the early 1970s, GDP growth on average was 4%, real GDP growth. Uh, During that period, uh, productivity gains were shared with workers. Uh, Productivity uh, and worker wages went up almost in lockstep. Since that time, uh, productivity has continued to follow its prior trajectory. Workers' wages have been basically flat. GDP growth, real GDP growth, has also declined and out to zero to three percent, depending on what period you're looking at. When you share gains and prosperity with workers, good things happen to your economy. Um, And so not everything was perfect in 1950 or 1960, but far from it. But the way in which workers was treated was a far cry from where we are uh, today. And I think that's a, just a critical issue. I mean, consider this, Robin, 50 percent of U.S. workers consider themselves disengaged at work. But 13 percent, one in eight workers, is so disaffected by how they're treated on the job, they actively work against the interest of their companies. That is a shocking statistic, one in eight. We can do better than that as an economy, and we'd be a lot more productive if we did.
1: We're going through the fourth industrial revolution. Automation, a constant drive for efficiency and productivity. There's also been the offshoring, whether that will continue, but the constant search to reduce the cost of labor. And now with the technology, we're all working from home, but maybe we can work from home somewhere cheaper. Already, a lot of those jobs are happening in countries. And maybe that's a good thing. So when, when, when you're asking a company to sign up to a purpose is generally the word you use in the book. What is its purpose when it comes to jobs? And, and why would it decide to follow that purpose?
0: Yeah. So that's a, a really good question, Robin. I, I think there was an observation uh, you know, within corporate America back in the 80s that maybe some American companies were fat. Um, that might have been true in America. That might have been true in other countries as well. Maybe that was true in 2000 or 2005. But um, the whole effort in the economy in the United States in the past, you know, 30, 40 years has been looking at workers as a source of cost to be reduced, as opposed to a place to be invested. You know, American companies have uh, forgotten how to be good employers. And I think there's an enormous amount of potential. And so while it may have been the case that jobs. You know, people needed to be more efficient from an employment standpoint 20 or 30 years ago, the, the opportunity now is all on the other side, investing in workers. And by the way, technology um, you know, can be an enormous enabler if you look at it in the right way. It doesn't have to replace uh, jobs uh, ex- you know, the way it has. It can actually help humans to be more productive.
2: I think about, uh, if you look at the S&P 500 today, in the US, I assume it's similar, UK, other developed markets. If you look at the market value of every company in S&P 500, of that market value today is in intangible assets. So 10% is in factories and equipment and land, uh, but 90% is in these intangible assets. And you think, if I'm trying to create the most prosperous, valuable companies I can, my focus has to be, how do I maximize the value of those intangible assets? And those intangible assets, that's people. That's the motivation, the inventiveness, the innovation of human beings. And the way you maximize that is by investing in them, by motivating them, recruiting the best talent. And I think what we're increasingly seeing, you see this in surveys, we also see in examples of companies that are doing well, is that those companies that can create a deeper mission, create a deeper purpose than profit, are those that are able to best attract, retain and motivate talent.
1: What impact has the pandemic had on any of this? We see it speeding up certain things that were happening anyway. Do you have any... any- idea that the pandemic has changed this? I think the
0: pandemic has accelerated a lot of things, um, but the pandemic has definitely accelerated the S in ESG, um, the social part. Um, I think that um, there's long been consensus that good governance makes for better companies. So I don't think there's much debate about that. Um, and I think in, you know there's long been a focus on uh, making companies more environmentally responsible. Um so I think that was you know absolutely uh, part of the focus pre pandemic but I think that when you see um you know the tragedy of the workforce and the tragedy that's afflicted the the front you know frontline workers in America and service workers who have been laid off en masse, i think finally um you know we're realizing that uh, if we don't treat treat our workers well, we can't have a just and sustainable uh, economy and uh you know I think in a period you know pre pandemic where um Unemployment rates were as low as they've ever been. I think it was easy to squint and ignore the, fact, the plight of workers. and I think finally uh, that's come to sharper relief. But I also think that people are now asking the question, do the statements of intent, do these adopt, you know, the adoption of these principles that corporations are touting, are these things going to turn into lasting change? And I would just underline what Michael said. If capitalists don't get busy turning good intentions into concrete change, someone else is going to fix capitalism for capitalists uh, and capitalists aren't going to like it very much. And so I think the time, I think it's urgent. I think the time is now for capitalists to get moving on turning good intentions into concrete
1: change. Warren Valdmanis and you also heard Michael O'Leary their book Accountable is out now and you can hear more about that on last week's regular edition of the Great Reset podcast to find that subscribe to the Great Reset wherever you get your podcasts or visit wef.ch slash podcasts you can follow the Jobs Reset Summit live at weforum.org where today on day two you can find all about the forum's future of jobs report which has just been published and follow all the action across social media on Facebook Instagram LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube, and on Twitter using the handle at WEF and the hashtag jobsreset. We'll be back tomorrow for day three of the Jobs Reset Summit, which will focus on education skills and lifelong learning. And we'll hear from this award-winning teacher about the one skill she says will future-proof our children as they head into an increasingly unpredictable jobs market.
3: Creativity should be embedded in absolutely every aspect of our curriculum. The beauty of teaching creativity is that what you're actually doing is enabling your learners to have transferable skills. And if we're not doing that, then we're just failing them.
1: That's teacher Andrea Zafiraco on tomorrow's Great Reset. My thanks to Linda Lacina, Keara Kelly, Civil Penaran and Gareth Nolan for help making these daily podcasts. Thanks to you for listening, but for now, from me, Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum, goodbye.